Hello and welcome to the Urban Talk podcast, where we talk all things urban, demystify development, and break down the barriers between the development sector and local communities. I'm your host, Belinda Barnett. This is our first podcast for 2023, and we're kicking off this year by talking with architect Gary Hennigan, who is the associate principal with the award-winning architectural and design studio, Architectus. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Belinda, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Our pleasure, our pleasure. I'm really looking forward to today because we're going to talk about design and city shaping um, and explore some of the challenges that architects face in bringing projects to life. And then we're going to throw the spotlight on some of the exciting new work that Architectus and yourself is doing in mixed-use developments. Can you start by telling me a little bit about your current role with Architectus and some of the projects that you work on? So, yeah, Architectus, look, we're a national practice with studios in all major cities in Australia. Um, we do have a very much a single cult, studio culture, um, which means we're collaborative nationally. So we've got nearly 500 staff nationally, and that's a mix of planners, urban designers, architects, and interior architects. So we're multi-sectors. We're across um, many of the sectors, uh, commercial, transport, residential, education, defence, and health pretty much covering all the sectors there. Um, and my role within the business is predominantly in the residential sector, um, re- residential mixed use. Over the last nearly eight years here, I've worked on other sectors, so commercial workplace projects, education projects, and large master plan projects, including urban design renewal precincts um, and transport-orientated precincts. Um, and generally, we uh, most of our projects are that large and um, complex mixed use uh, developments. Um, we find now that there's not one single use um, in these buildings. It's you know truly mixed-use buildings. So we um, have a larger-scale approach to our urban design plan from the start, and then all the way through down to architecture and then interior design. Great. I'm going to get a little bit personal now. Um, and what inspired you originally to enter the world of architecture? Um, what inspired me? So I think going way back, so I grew up in Scotland, um, in Glasgow. My earliest memories are in taking around castles and stately homes, and uh, my mum would drag us all around there, and I think that's probably one of the earliest um, inspirations, if you like, uh, vivid memories of taking around um, the Hill House in uh, Helensboro, which is a Charlotte Macintosh um, building with beautiful furniture. And so I think that, that um, probably... Um, an inspiration without actually realising and then future in life I actually then went on to Glasgow School of Art which was the um, Macintosh School of Architecture um, and I think that uh, certainly shaped my inspiration to be an, an architect. Have you ever been able to design your own castle? There's <laughs> no castles yet in the portfolio. That could be a new sector for architects maybe. Castle design yet. No, not yet. Do you think architects are dream makers? Yeah, I think there is an element of that probably in a romantic sense that we get to um, realise the dreams of others and we get an insight into so many different sectors of problems. I think often feel like we're more problem solvers sometimes rather than um, dream makers. We sort of uh, help to unlock certain things. Um, yeah, I think there's a there's an element of dream making in there and a kind of romantic view, but I think there's certainly a sort of problem solving side of that as well. Sure. There's no doubt that there's no project without the architect. So when you look at what you bring to a project, what do you see as your underlying value? 
Um, I think any good architect is able to take a problem or a constraint within the sites and really unlock the site. I think that becomes your value add. So often uh, numerous constraints on a site and it's really about how you deal with those constraints, whether it be from a planning point of view, from um, physical constraints, and it's then the response that's able to be right for that place and and have a really good design response that can then unlock a site that could potentially be um, quite a challenge. It's always one of the things, I guess, that baffles me. I mean, I'm a planner and I get caught in the web of regulation (laughs) and and policy controls, but a developer or a a client comes to you and, and they want you to design a project, whether that be a master plan project or an individual building. How on earth do you start? You've got the site, you've got the analysis that comes from the site, you've got the regulation, you've got the client's brief. How does it all come together? Can you demystify it for me? I think it really depends. Often the first point really would be to look at the planning constraints. That then is um, often the biggest challenge is working out the constraints. And then we look at then the, the analysis of the site. You have to have a deep understanding of the site and its place and its wider context. So starting from that really macro you know, you might look at the links to other um, areas and really understand the strategic context of where the site sits. And once you have that sort of larger scale understanding of the precinct and its connections, and then it's really breaking it down into then within the site, what's within the boundaries, what's the constraints, whether it be acoustic issues adjacent to the site or heritage building within it, and, and how we actually then respond to those. Where does the, the client brief sort of come in into play with this are you are there are there times when you are just saying to a client i mean the expectations just might be too great given that you're looking at at that initial level at those sort of constraints and opportunities that what they're trying to achieve is just not possible do you, i mean do you have to have those difficult conversations with oh, some yeah. of your clients for sure like to say go you know you need to wind it back yeah, I mean, obviously there's a delicate balance there between what the client would want on the site and what can be achieved. So we have to, you know, temper those um, expectations sometimes. For us, it's about making sure that the development outcome matches a good sense of place as well, so that the actual end outcome is sort of good for the people that are using the space. It really comes down to that human-centric design level from a design brief that might be challenging to achieve, but you have to make sure that the end outcome is sort of good for the actual user of the space, not just the um, client. No, absolutely. So have you ever had a situation where, I mean, you've done all this work, you know, and, and then you, you're doing that initial sort of, I guess, presentation to the client where they say, Gary, I, I'm not buying this. I just don't like it. What, 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 what do you do? <laughs> or does it happen very often? It does happen in terms of, uh, you know, we put forward ideas all the time and, and they are there to be challenged and that's that's healthy i think that's the nature of collaboration that's the nature of being responsive to a number of different constraints and that the, there may be some things that you can change within the design and, and be able to get the outcome that the client's looking for and there may be other things that you know there's a reason why you've had to design it in such a way so um but yeah no can happen quite a lot that's why we do options so you can pick the right option so that's normally really part of this sort of of the process that you follow that you would you would present a series of options to a client and maybe identify what would be your preferred option and, and the reasons for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it has to come from the client. There has to be a decision from the client. So we have to demonstrate a rationale or a series of thinking that would allow them to understand why we've come to a solution. What we try and do is sort of 
start from those constraints and then look at what the opportunities are on the site, where we think that the built form should be or the open space um, and design around that. But then there's multi-layered approach then to the planning overlay on top of that. And and often what that will do is it'll predetermine potentially a series of options and then we have to explore that with the client. So I think that engagement with the client is really important from an early point to sort of start from the beginning and go on the journey together, yeah. After running community engagement for around 30 years now, I feel like um, most people walk around with an inner architect. It can be very subjective. Everybody's got a view about when they see a scheme or a design resolution for a site or for a precinct. From your point of view as, as an architect, given that you've got so many balls in the air that you're juggling to, I guess, arrive at options or at a, a preferred outcome, when you do community engagement, how, how would you like to see the community contribute their ideas or their comments back to the process to in a way that is meaningful to you? A, a good example, I think, of that is we recently completed a project for Seabus Property at Epping, um, right on the metro there. So the local residents naturally were concerned, the fact that there's going to be a series of towers that would be put around this metro. Um, so from the early beginning of that project, there was a community consultation group set up. So CBIS Property set that up, which was excellent, and it allowed then the community to demonstrate their concerns. And what, what was interesting through that process, I was on that project for nearly three years. Um, from the point that I was on it to the point it was finished, the, the community's um, perception of the development had completely changed. So they went from it being, we don't want towers in our back door, to actually this is a really good outcome for the site there's a public domain benefit there's going to be retail they were interested in how much car parking the visitors would have so there was an engagement there and i think that comes back to that early engagement with community so were they i'll say on a project like that with you getting their buy-in um like really early on in terms of establishing design parameters for the site from an urban design and planning team they would often go to community consultation um, so for large land and housing um, projects, recently we've just done one with in Riverwood um, and went through that whole community consultation process. Uh, and that's before anything's any papers hit the you know pens hit the paper. It's kind of from very early. Um, then you know the other sort of example of that is that on the other end of the spectrum where the CBUS property we there was a design already in place, but it was about engaging them and letting them be part of that sort of conversation. Did the Riverward project where you didn't have any plans to show the community, was that a harder route than, say, the Epping, where you at least had some preliminary designs to to get them to sort of like comment on? I think the earlier the engagement, um, the better, really, in terms of being able to um, take on board the feedback and, and really design something that's fitting for the, the place. So... Um, the early consultation helps with just understanding the needs of the community. Do you find in that situation that communities become, when they're working with you in that capacity, that communities become less focused or less worried about non-compliance with regulation? Yeah, I don't think that really comes into their mind, really. I think from a community perspective, it's more about what this development do for their immediate needs or requirements. That was interesting. It's, it's great to actually get your um, view on that. I mean, I've, I've always held the view that you should start consultation as early as possible. Um, but often, you know, given the complexity of the design process, sort of wondering, you know, 
is it feasible from the architect's point of view? So it's great to to get your comments on that. Um, yeah, as I said, I'm a planner, um, and you've already talked about like one of the first starting points for you is looking at planning regulation. How much do you feel that planning regulation, I guess, clips your design wings? Um, is it beneficial guidance or is it just sheer aggravation? Would you love to be in a world where you just literally had a blank sheet <laughs> and, and could design free of regulation? Would it work? I think it could be dangerous for architects. <laughs> just give them a blank sheet of paper. Uh, no, look, I think planning is good. Um, it needs There is a framework that we need to work within. So that that's the first comment there, I think. Um, I think the issues arrive when the framework is so restrictive that we don't have the flexibility to design um, within those um, constraints an outcome that everyone's going to be happy with. So there's often times where a DCP or a design guideline is so constrictive, you can't actually, you have no movement to move within the design and it's no inherent flexibility. So there's an intent, a good intent, but there's often then that um, inflexibility leads to poor outcomes. So there may be a better outcome, but you can't get that achieved because the planning is so tight on the site. I think the other thing is guidelines out there and often the guidelines are good, um, but not when they're used as a sort of rule book that you must follow. The guideline by nature should be something that guides the design, not necessarily informs the end outcome. So I think if we look at, I mean, we're in a housing affordability crisis here. Often the regulations hamper the delivery of housing, and that predominantly is something that will then mean the affordability worse, um, we should really be looking at things like flexibility of apartment sizes. If we're constrictive on the apartment sizes, you can't then provide a sort of diverse amount of housing and the typologies then become very driven to be the same sort of um, outcome. And often I think there's uh, a lack of sort of flexibility that would allow them, you know, adaptive um, housing for more people. Do you think with things like the um State Environmental Planning Policy 65 sort of governs residential uh, flat building design. Do we run the risk of that the web of regulation um, and control is so great that buildings start looking the same? Does it take away from your ability for you to really individualise design? Uh, I don't don't think necessarily the buildings will all look the same. I think um, an architect can certainly put a different um, facade on a building. Um, There would be diverse in terms of the built form outcomes, not necessarily the same um, design outcome, but I certainly think that there is an element of having the minimum apartment sizes and then a developer-led model where you might have the same style of apartments in there. So that that would drive to the same outcome often, which is not ideal, I think. You've also got now to consider, particularly in places like the City of Sydney, um, a lot of design excellence processes. Um, if planning regulation wasn't just enough to contend with, are you? Do you believe that you know the design review panels and and the design competitions are they promoting? Do they deliver better design outcomes? I think design excellence should be commended. I think that is the intent of design excellence is um, certainly what we should all be striving for. So that's probably the first thing. I think there's a natural tendency to think that is that the design excellence must only be through a design competition. I don't necessarily agree with that approach. Design excellence can be achieved in a number of different ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be a design competition. 
And so when we look at the design review panels, are actually a really good way of being able to present your work. So it might be to the government architect or a design review panel and demonstrate good design and a rationale. Like we talked about earlier, you take it from the initial analysis of the site and that's take it all the way through to your response. And often that can be appreciated and understood and there's a reason why you've got to where you've got to and it might not be fully compliant with a number of different regulations. However, you get a far superior outcome. I think that's important. I guess in in the world of like design competitions, I mean, Architectus has been very successful in winning a number of competitions. From your client's perspective, are there any negatives? Competition process is a really challenging one, I think, from for the whole architectural industry. There is a significant cost incurred, um, not only from an architectural practice, from the wider industry. So the consultant group, we would be working with a myriad of consultants on a single design competition, might be run for a couple of months, but those costs can run up to into the hundreds of thousands, if not you know, a million dollars per competition. So to do that every time we're trying to compete for a project is just not feasible. So it needs there needs to be a sort of a balance, I think, of this design competition led approach. I think also the clients have a similar feedback. Their costs are um, if not more the nurse and they also don't have full control over the outcome which I think is a challenge for clients certainly that's the feedback we've had is that they don't necessarily get the right outcome um, that they want for the site and then perhaps in some instances they get better outcomes you know that's the sort of flip of the coin it's the um, the innovation may come from another architect I guess one of the nice things that when we were talking before the podcast was that, look, they do give the chance for maybe some younger architects to show their ability um, that may not normally come from, um, you know, if, if, they, if we were in a non-competitive environment. And that then is fostering new relationships between large firms like Architectus and newer entrants. Yeah. No, I think that's really important. Um, I think we, as a design studio, um, really enjoy collaborations. We look to partner with um, emerging architects quite often. We'll, we'll partner with larger international architects as well, but we also um, love to collaborate with smaller up-and-coming practices as well. And I think it just gives that diversity of the architecture. Um, it allows perhaps really um, new and exciting ideas to be um, then provided to us and then for us to sort of have that ability to then document that through and, and you know, have that sort of um, support that a lot of smaller practice might not have. So there's certainly benefits to it. Um, and I think the city of Sydney obviously having the, you know, a weight or importance on um, partnering with emerging architects is, is good. Um, and it just means that there's um, an ability to sort of, almost in a mentoring sort of way, be able to sort of provide that experience um, and it works both ways because we get then really great ideas and new ideas and new ways of working sometimes. Yeah, no, I think it's dynamic and I, I think that is actually one of the really positive outcomes of, of the process. We might move on to talk a little bit about mixed-use developments. Um, you know, today, like the idea of a siloed land use development is is pretty rare. Um, it's all about mixing it up, 
you know, having a combination of medium and high density resi, places where we work and shop, hospitality, tourism, recreational spaces, all mixed together. It makes sense. It makes sense from a number of levels, A, because the cost of land is is expensive. Um, You know, you get a greater efficiency and and a greater outcome. And they're just a lot more vibrant and open for promoting positive social interaction, which helps mental health and a whole lot of other things. You have, I guess, uh, I was reading that in a lot of ways, and, you, and you, you've, you touched on it at the outset, that in some ways Architectus has actually restructured its studio almost to an acknowledgement of this sort of movement towards mixed-use development. Can you talk a little bit about how, how that's working? So the, we mentioned we are multi-sectors across a lot of um, sectors. But what we're finding now is that we we are now partnering quite a lot more um, cross-sector work, So, which is really exciting for us. We That's a kind of sweet spot of being able to bring in an expert in a school, um, bring in a residential expert, and we'll have an urban designer in there and a planner. And so really everyone's collaborating on that. Um, so the way the business is sort of strip, set that up is that we'll have group directors across um, for instance, we are commercial living and interiors, and we find that dynamic works really well. So we've got um, projects currently that we're working through that we'll have a commercial team working with our residential team and education because there'll be components of each in there. So those those projects are probably the most exciting sort of ones to work on, where you've got that variety built form and, and outcomes, and taking it right from planners right through from urban design. You often use a term called true mixed use. Can you tell me a little bit about what you mean when you mean true mixed use? Yeah, I think, you know, historically maybe a mixed use development would just be residential with a bit of retail at the bottom and that's classed as mixed use because of two different building uses or classes within that development. What we're finding now is there's a real blood between work, you know, play, home, it's all seamlessly blood um, between. And I think that's it. It's also about this sort of idea of community and shared amenity and actually having everything, you know, a walk city where you don't really want to have a commute to your workplace, you really want that on your doorstep or it might be the school being within walking distance. So for us, um, we have focused now a lot more on these large scale um, complex of mixed use precincts that actually have, um, you know, complementary um, uses so there may be for instance a school within the, the site um, then you're going to have residential there may be commercial workspace within that as well and retail so you, when we talk about true mixed use and, and they might have shared facilities within those so that you're actually sharing you know getting good use of the space we're working on a project another project in Epping um, which has a church on it a school um, it's got seniors living residential so, and they all use the different spaces at different times, so you're starting to activate the site genuinely the whole 24 hours, almost the seniors living gets the ability to use the school grounds after um, after hours and, and vice versa. We're seeing a lot more of that now, and I think it's actually smart use of land. Land costs are so high, and we have to make every sort of every square meter work really hard, and I think there's a real ability to have complementary amenity together, different uses and I think it's the lifestyle people want now as well. Yeah, you've touched a couple of times, um, you know, just talking about 
the integration of schools. And I know you're doing some innovative work with the Department of Education in this area. Can you talk a little bit about that, the concept? Because for a lot of people, you wouldn't think that a school would necessarily be a component of a mixed-use development. Well, yeah, so our education team are working with the um, schools infrastructure to develop a new urban design sorry, the urban schools um, design guidelines. So that is schools that are within the urban environment. What's quite interesting is there's now a shift towards the the precincts with um, schools within them. Initially, a bit of a strange concept for me is having a a residential tower potentially above a school, sort of um, one that you have to sort of think through. But there is actually a lot of sense in what, what we're trying to achieve there because essentially the catchment area potentially of the schools. So there's a real requirement for schools in most catchment areas and they're often at full capacity. So what's happening is that residential development is actually pushing out the school catchment area and you might provide another two or 3,000 dwellings on the space but then there's no school there for it. So the new model would be looking at introducing a school within the site um, but not just a standalone school. They're now looking at a model where you can actually integrate that into say a podium style building um, looking at floor to floor heights that are flexible in terms of the use. So before um, where you might have had a higher floor to floor, it's now been sort of rationalised in a way that it can be converted down the line to commercial, for instance, so that there is a flexibility in the building use. And it comes back to sustainability as well. So adaptive reuses of buildings are a lot easier if the flexibility is inherent within the design. It might not often always be the case that it ends up as a flexible design, but there is an ability at least to potentially change that back to commercial space or it could be changed to something like tertiary education or some other type of use. Does that mean that we're saying, are schools getting smaller? Is, is there a concept of having more smaller schools or it's not so much that, it's the, the, the sort of the, I guess, I guess the ideal size of a school is still staying at that, that, that size? You know, not necessarily smaller. I think just um, flexible spaces um, more so. Um, so still the same size, but then potentially looking at how you can integrate buildings over the top um, or integrated within um, existing buildings, which is actually another sort of interesting space for adaptive reuse of existing buildings um, to try and repurpose them and give them another life. I'd imagine a lot of kids would really love to, um, in some ways, live where their school is. Go, they get to sleep in a lot a lot longer yeah, yeah, <laughs> in yeah, the morning. Definitely handier. Yeah, yeah drop offs quite easy. Yeah. So yeah, that would definitely be a plus. I think that's the thing. It's about convenience of lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. As well. It's not about getting in the car, having to go and do drop off and do it. So if you've got a tree mixed use precinct where you do have the school like within walking distance, you've got your local grocers, you've got all the convenience of perhaps recreational spaces, basketball courts, it creates a community feel to the space. And I think that's where we're starting to move away from rather than siloed residential buildings, siloed school, a workplace. So everything is actually becoming a lot more um, intermingled. Yeah, I think COVID taught us that post, post-COVID. It made us, I guess, really more dependent on our local areas and, and really highlighted that we didn't need to have to have siloed land uses, that we could do everything in the one place. So mixed use, you've talked about your Epping projects. When you get to designing, say, mixed use in a city environment, you guys have you know, worked on the um, Brookfield Place development, which you know, is, is award-winning. I think you did, that was a collaboration for you with another firm of architects called Make. It's cha- absolutely changed that whole Wynyard precinct. It's, I, I personally think it's a fabulous project. 
Can you share a little bit about your experiences on on, on designing a mixed-use project like that? Wynyard is a really good example of that, that innovation in design where the commercial tower over the top is, has actually got suspended lift core so that that's actually the ability to then come down into the train station and that's opened up a whole um, ground plane and not have any constraints over the commercial core come right through down onto the railway line. So again, coming back to that comment about what, what can the architect offer, that was a sort of design solution that was proposed by the architects and the structural engineer team to really open up that ground plane. I think that's what good architecture and good design can do. It gives you the ability to give back something to the public, to the, the ground plane. Another project which we've collaborated on, which I was involved with, was the 505 George Street project. It's the where the event cinema is. And again, a real um, flavour of mixed use within an urban environment. We There's a, a retail podium at the base. Uh, it'll be an 80-storey tower for residential use above with amenities through the tower, swimming pools and health and wellbeing spaces. We do deliver these uh, buildings, but what can we deliver for the people that use the spaces, especially in a residential environment where people have their own apartments. Um, but on the ground plane, what can we open up and actually offer back to um, people that sort of dwell in the city? And um, another example would be Barrett Place, the architects of the one and design competition. Um, and the idea was then that create a through site link that is actually given back to the public. Um, the retail lobby was made a lot smaller, and so that the, the retail edge and the lobby just read as part of the through site link. And again, quite a successful outcome for the um, public domains. Yeah. And that's where, I mean, it really does start to change the face of a city and how people experience the city. I know that we talked um, again before the podcast about, I guess, the the innovation and the sustainability um, deliverables that you're able to achieve when you're designing mixed-use precincts. Can you share a little bit about, about that work and those outcomes on these projects? Yeah, I think we've, we've got a lot better to look at now carbon-positive developments, um, good examples currently already built in Sydney. Um, Central Park is a really good example. I was fortunate enough to work on that. Fraser's have developed a model where it's a central plant that feeds the whole site. Um, so there's thermal plant um, centralised within the site. So there's things like that where you actually get into leverage off a well-designed master plan um, rather than, again, looking at individual buildings on a, a lot. Um, so we're finding that's now um, certainly the way that these issues developments were going. Things like waste management, for instance, that centralised waste management for the whole a series of buildings in one loading dock rather than multiple loading docks. So you get that shared efficiency. And that must be great for the end inhabitants as well, because that's that's keeping those costs down, those running costs down of, of the buildings as well. Yeah, and I think also, you know, we look at future ways of living, looking at build trend as a serious um new asset class that's coming through and a, a new housing type so we're working a lot in that space and you know, I think the benefits again from rent but from single um, ownership allows the ability for a greater look at the sustainability benefits that a residential development can, can have because you know commercial is way ahead in that space probably driven by the fact that there's actually incentives for commercial development so there's now a uh, an element of the residential sector being able to sort of catch up. So what do you think are, are really the exciting um, aspects that we can look forward to um, in mixed-use design? 
I think in general, we've looked at a few really exciting research pieces recently. So prefabrication and modular construction has been around for a while, but how do we actually make housing more affordable by um, implementing some of those strategies? I think biophilic design is something that we're very keen on, and I think that will come through a lot more in our design as we move forward. Net zero energy homes is something that we've we've looked at quite a lot. And then, you know, building automation systems, coming back to the smart building technologies, the waste, I think we're getting better at that. So electrical vehicle, charging infrastructure, having those sorts of things built into developments now. So we're seeing this being implemented. Some of it's not new technology, but it's actually starting to become a lot more commonplace. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for for joining us today. Um, I've really enjoyed, I guess, hearing about the exciting work that uh, you are doing and your own personal views about design and and mixed-use development. Um, I know that we're all in good hands <laughs> with with companies like Architectus out there and 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 paving the way um, on on these wonderful development projects that are really shaping our cities and and making exciting places for us to live. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. That's great. During the year, we'll continue to invite guests to speak on a variety of topics. If you have a topic that you'd like to hear about, please send it through via the Urban Talk website or email me directly at belinda at urbantalk.com.au. For updates on Urban Talk, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. My name is Belinda Barnett and thank you for listening to the Urban Talk podcast.